Thanks, Eric. Well, good morning, church. As Eric mentioned, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. We are going to continue our sermon series this morning looking at the mothers of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, look quickly at Matthew chapter 1 with me. Matthew chapter 1. One, and we'll see as we go through this. Um, I hope this makes sense to you why we're doing this as we go. It's actually my least favorite Advent sermon series that I've ever done so far. And, uh, and I asked myself, why are we doing this again? Because I, I have great holiday memories. I love like joy to the world. I love all the commercial celebration of Christmas. True confession, I do. I just, I love it. I love the lights. I love the trees. I love the department stores. I love even the lamest of the lame songs on the radio. It's just who I am. But I know that that's not true for everybody. And, and our culture has created Christmas to be something kind of cheap. Sometimes our our holiday cheer, our holiday greetings, even the songs that we sing, the songs that we sing here at church have a lot of depth and meaning and richness to them, but a lot of the songs that you're going to hear in the department stores or on the radio or some of the Hallmark Christmas movies that you watch, they all kind of tidied up with this nice little bow, right? And honestly, that's where I want to be this Christmas. I just want to enjoy the season, be holly and merry and jolly and have joy, but that's not life, is it? And so this Christmas, we're looking at what we could consider the, the opening credits to the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1. And so look at Matthew chapter 1 with me. It's on page 807 in the Pew Bible. We see the genealogy of Jesus. So you can think about it like the opening credits to the Christmas story. And starting in verse 1, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about him this morning. And it goes on to say, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you've heard a lot probably about Jesus and David and Abraham. If you haven't been around the Bible for very long, you will hear a lot about these characters as you get to know the Bible, as you ask questions and learn. And David was a big deal. He was the promised king. He was the, the chosen king of God's people, Israel. And he led Israel well. And Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, became this prominent nation, this power full nation. And it was promised to David that in his line, one of his descendants would come as the Messiah king. So David was this great political king, but it was promised that one of his descendants would come as the Messiah king, the savior king, the king who would open up salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike, the one who would deliver the people from the effects of their sin. And so here we're picking up this birth story of Jesus, the Christmas story by looking at his family tree and understanding these characters who, who play into Jesus' life. And then jump down to verse 5 with me. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. We talked about Rahab a couple weeks ago. A poor pagan prostitute. She marries in to the people of God. Into Israel. She marries a guy named Solomon. Yes, his name is Solomon. Not Solomon. Solomon. And Boaz... They have this son named Boaz, who we looked at last week, fathered by Obed and Ruth. We remember Ruth, we talked about her last week, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the third king of Israel, David's son, by the wife of Uriah. And so this morning, we're looking at the wife of Uriah. This is the fourth lady in the genealogy here of Jesus, in Jesus' family tree. Why does it refer to her as the wife of Uriah? If you've been around the Bible, you know that this is Bathsheba. 
the woman of whom David took advantage of, the woman of, of whom David, the chosen king, well, the one that he raped. And so why here is Matthew not even naming her by name? Well, as Tim Keller says, it's a Bible booby trap. What he's doing is he's trying to catch the self-righteous, those who think David is our great king. David, David is the, the, our ancient leader of Israel, this great one who, who helped our nation become prominent. And what he's doing, Matthew here, is, is reminding people that even David, the great king of Israel, is a sinner in need of salvation. And so Jesus here, in this, in this lineage, he's coming to these broken people, to these messed up people, to this extreme mess. And Matthew is recording that. He's giving us the opening credits to the Christmas story, not just to gloss over, but so that we can see that Jesus enters the mess. And so this morning, we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba, and I don't want to. It's the last Sunday before Christmas. I want to do just some nice, tidy sermon that helps us sing the Christmas songs with joy. But I think the reality is when we dive into the brokenness and to see the world that Jesus entered, it actually helps us to sing with more truth, with more joy, because we actually cling to the hope of the gospel. And so I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we read 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's on page 262 in the Pew Bible. Eric is going to read that passage for us. And as we do, here's the big idea this morning. As we talk about 2 Samuel chapter 11, after we read it, we'll see that the inclusion of Bathsheba in the opening credits to the Christmas story forces us to think about the slippery slope of sin, the devastating effects of sin, and God's way of dealing with sin. Take it away, Eric. All right, so again, that's on page 262. We read all of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent, and she told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to him, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of, the Lord, or of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said to him. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead. And Uriah, servant, or, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Lord, I ask that you would cause this passage to come alive to us today in a way that exalts Christ and empowers our faith to trust and follow you. Jesus, we thank you for entering the mess, for meeting each one of us where we're at here this morning. Pray that you would lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Well, again, this story is tragic and PG-13 at best rated. It might be more like X-rated, triple X-rated. We actually played with the idea of naming this triple X-miss, but... Um, thought we'd stay away from that. So this is the Bible. This is more dramatic than anything you are going to find at the box office this season. And so here's what we see happening. The inclusion of Bathsheba, again, remember, it refers to her as the wife of Uriah in Matthew chapter 1, and that is to call out David. They don't just say, and David, David and Bathsheba had Solomon. That's not why Matthew said it that way. Because people may have forgotten how David and Bathsheba ended up together. So what Matthew is doing in Matthew chapter 1 when he says, and David and the wife of Uriah, he's reminding people of the messiness to which God comes. The extreme mess to which Jesus enters the world. And her inclusion in Matthew 1 in the opening credits to the Christmas story forces us to deal with and to think about the slippery slope of sin, the devastating effects of sin, and God's way of dealing with sin. Let's first talk about the slippery slope of sin. Look at what has happened here. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings went out to battle, David is a king. This is the time of year when kings go out to battle. David is a warrior. I mean, David is known as a ruthless, skilled warrior. He, he's the one who's killed animals. He's killed 
pagan nations. He's killed Goliath with a stone. Remember David? He's a ruthless warrior. He's the leader of Israel. He's their king, but he's also a guy who's extremely skilled in battle. And so this is the time of the year when kings generally go out to battle. David sent Joab, one of his military leaders, and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Something's going wrong here. This is the time of the year when kings are supposed to go to battle, and David is a battle warrior king, but he's not with his people. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He's not at war. He ought to be out at battle. Here's the, we, we see the slippery slope of sin beginning when we skirt our duties. Why is David at home? Why is he napping in the afternoon? I mean, it says it directly right there. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. I don't know if they wore sweatpants back then, but this is like the middle of a Wednesday afternoon and the king is in his sweatpants on the couch while his men are out fighting the war. Can you, can you imagine what's going on here? What's, what's happening? There's probably two two things that are, there's one of two things that are going on here. Either one, David is just, he's become too big for his britches, so he had to put sweatpants on there, stretchy, right? No, he's, he, he's in, in Israel with them being a world power. They are now on top. God has blessed them. David has led well. They have conquered kingdoms. He's thinking, I no longer have to do the dirty work. I'm above that. I can stay home. I can nap. I can send my people out to war, and and I have my soldiers and my people do the dirty work for me. And and isn't this sometimes what happens with us when we we become successful or we, we get some blessing from God? Sometimes we take our foot off the gas pedal of obedience, and we think, well, God's been pretty good to me, and I've done a pretty good job leading or doing whatever he's asked me to do, so I can take my foot off the gas pedal a little bit. I can, I can rest, I can relax on my past victories. And yeah, other people can go do the dirty work for me, the hard work for me. I'm going to sit here and nap and relax. I tend to think that's what's happening. The other option is that David is just struck with the weight of leading. Like maybe he's dealing with a low level or or a high level of depression. And he's just feeling the weight of leading Israel and all these battles that they've been through. And so he's at home in the afternoon. He's not out with his men. He's in his sweatpants and he's actually dealing with depression. He's kind of shutting people out and shutting the world outside. We don't know exactly what's going on. I think it's one of those two. I think it's probably the first one. But you've probably been there before, right? Either when there's been a little bit of success and blessing in your life and you tend to take it for granted or you tend to take the credit for it and you kind of take your foot off the gas pedal of obedience. Or you're in this pressured season of life. You have this weight on your shoulders and rather than continuing to press into that weight with obedience, you say, I'm just going to hide from it. I'm going to shut the curtains. I'm going to close the blinds. I'm going to throw on my sweatpants. I'm going to sit in my basement and watch Netflix at two in the afternoon on a Wednesday. That's where David's at, one of those two things. And, and we see this slippery slope of sin. See, that's where sin creeps in, church family. Either when we have had a level of success and we take credit or we take it for granted and we stop obediently following God or when we feel the pressure and the weight of the world upon us and rather than running to God with it, we run from everyone and everything. And so this is David's state. And in that state, 
he gets up from his couch, verse 2, he walks around the roof of the king's house. The king's house was elevated, so he's up above and he's looking down over the city of Jerusalem and he sees a woman bathing. Now, this, is, this culture isn't like ours. They, they don't have like blinds on all of their windows and insulated homes. It's mostly like stone homes with open windows and you can just see, right? And so David's up on the roof and he sees Bathsheba bathing. It says she's very beautiful. She's doing nothing wrong. David is a peeping Tom. This is the king of Israel. The Bible refers to him as a man after God's own heart. We're going to see in this story this tragic unraveling of a guy who yet God redeemed. So he sees Bathsheba bathing. She's very beautiful, the text notes. So he sees this. What does he do with this? Temptation is around us, church family, right? You cannot avoid temptation. You cannot live your life in such a way where you won't see temptation. Whatever it is for you that is a tempting thing that would allure you away from God, you cannot remove yourself from life's temptations. It's what you do with the temptation that matters. The Bible in other places tells us to flee temptation, to run from it. But here, David looks, and his look turns to lust, and lust always, pretty much always, turns to action. You act on that lust. When you see something and you continue to look at it and it turns to lust, you usually act on that lust. And that's what David did here. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, one of his servants said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So this person who goes to check on Bathsheba comes back and tells David, the one who you asked me to inquire about, that's one of your mighty men's wife. Uriah was considered one of David's mighty men's, is one of his key warriors, somebody who has saved David's life, someone who David has gone to battle with. This is like one of his best friends, one of his closest associates, one of his, his most important men to protecting the kingdom and just in David's life. And so this, I think this, this messenger here is trying to warn David. They know what's going on. David, you've been off your rocker. Success is getting to your head. You're getting a big head. Or you're depressed and we don't trust the decisions that you're making. Why did you call me to ask about Bathsheba? I did and I came back and I'm telling you, she is the wife of one of your best friends and most trusted advisors and best warriors. <laughs> but David had looked and his look had turned to lust and his lust needed to be fed. And so verse 4, it says, And David sent the messengers and took her. And she came to him, and she lay with him. Now, this is just rape. It, it's, it's power rape. It's authority rape. In this culture, if the king calls for you, you listen. For all we know, Bathsheba thought that David was calling her to his house, to his palace, to ask her how she was doing without her husband, one of David's best men in the war. She probably thinks, oh, the king wants to talk to me. I'm sure he's going to want to make sure that everything's okay with me at home as my husband's off at war. He calls to her, and he takes advantage of her. What choice does she have? She has no choice. He's using his power, his authority, his influence over her, and he takes advantage of her. Then she returned to her house, the end of verse 4, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh-oh. David has just gotten Bathsheba pregnant. He's slept with another man's wife. 
one of his best friends, one of his best men's wife, and gotten her pregnant. Slippery slope of sin. He looked, he lusted, that turned to action, and now what's he going to do? So the story goes on to show us both the slippery slope of sin as it continues to lead him away from God and from doing what's right, and as it continues to impact Bathsheba, this devastating effect. And so David, he, he's, he thinks, I know how to get out of this situation, and isn't this what sin does to us? We, we sin, and, and we know that our sin has devastating effects on others, and so we start to think, how can, I, how can I get out of this? How can I backpedal? How can I change the situation so that it doesn't hurt me, it doesn't hurt to the people that I love? And so David has this brilliant idea. I'm going to call Uriah back from the war. And have him go and visit Bathsheba, and then he'll sleep with her, he'll get her pregnant, and nobody know it was me who got her pregnant. Isn't this just scummy? This is your Bible. This is the, the, the opening credits to the Christmas story. This is the reality that Jesus enters, church family. This is David, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. So he calls Uriah back. And Uriah is an upstanding guy. He says, I'm not going to go sleep with my wife when my fellow soldiers are out at war, when we're not at peace. Isn't that just upstanding? He's a man of integrity. He makes a wise decision. He won't do it. And so then David says, okay, I've got another plan. I'm going to get Uriah drunk. Surely, in his drunken stupor, he's going to go and sleep with his wife. So he does that. He gets Uriah drunk. And even in his drunken state, Uriah has integrity. He doesn't go home. He doesn't sleep with Bathsheba. The slippery slope of sin, David continues to try to cover his tracks, to get out of it, to do whatever he can to deal with sin on his own. And meanwhile, all these things are affecting Bathsheba. She's pregnant. She's carrying an unwanted, unplanned child. Her husband's off at war, and so David's like, i got to get out of this mess somehow. And so he sends Uriah with his own death warrant to Joab, the, the commander. And Uriah wouldn't look at it because it's a letter from the king. It's sealed. Uriah knows, I, I respect David. David's my leader. David's my king. I'm not going to peek at his mail. I'm not going to open up the mail that he's sending to Joab. So Uriah delivers this letter to Joab, the, the commander of the army, and that letter says, put Uriah in the front. Send him into battle so that we can ensure that he will die. Uriah falls in battle. He's dead. David's out of it, right? So he thinks. So he calls Bathsheba back and, and he marries her. And now the devastating effects of David's sin is that Bathsheba has an unplanned pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy. Her husband has just died and now she's forced to marry a guy that she hasn't chosen to marry. She's forced to marry King David. And David thinks that finally I'm out of it. Right? This all looks like it was just this random, random series of events. Look at the end of the chapter. But the thing that David did displeased Yahweh, displeased the Lord. So we see this slippery slope of sin that, that David is sliding down, and we see these devastating effects that it has on Bathsheba church family. Haven't we all been there in one way or another? Those covering our tracks, trying to, trying to pick up the pieces on our own from our sin that have deeply affected others? 
or in the position of Bathsheba that we've been sinned against. I mean, especially at the holidays, people deal with memories of things that have happened. They deal with the pain and the hurt of loss. I mean, the other devastating effects of sin here is that this son dies. It's God's judgment for David's sin. And so Bathsheba has this kid, and this kid is taken from her, and she's done nothing wrong in this story. There's devastating effects from our sin. It affects others. Sometimes our enemy would lie to us and try and think, your, your sin is isolated. It's only going to affect you and your relationship with God. It may make you feel distant for a while, but you can, you can clean yourself back up and you can get back into God's presence and start feeling better about yourself. That's kind of how the enemy lies to us. But the reality is sin affects everything. It has devastating effects. And when we start giving into it, we continue to go with it. That's what we see happening here to David. And so, church, this Christmas season, this Advent season, I, I want us to actually engage this reality that don't let yourself go over the next couple days. Vacation comes, you get some time off, you get some time with family. Maybe there's, there's a lot of us dealing with some heavy things in life. And we may be tempted to just kind of hit autopilot, but be careful for the slippery slope of sin. And be reminded that our decisions impact others. And this is what we see happening here in this story. But we also see God's way of dealing with sin. God's way of dealing with sin. In chapter 12, which we don't have time to read this morning, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan calls David out for his sin, for his wrongdoing. And eventually, over time, David repents. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Write those down if you want to do more study on this story. Read 2 Samuel chapter 12, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 if you want to kind of wrap your mind around this story in a greater way. And you'll see how David in Psalm 32 talks about how when he kept this silent, when he was on the slippery slope of sin, when he was trying to cover his tracks, when he was trying to make it all okay in his own power, it says that, that sin was was was. In me, it was, it was causing my bones to break. He had a heavy heart and broken bones. And then in Psalm 51, we see D David's repentance. His, his coming out party after, after Nathan confronts David. And David is, is convicted by the Lord. He repents. And he too receives God's mercy. If I'm honest with you, I don't want David to receive God's mercy. This is a despicable man who's made decisions that are not even imaginable to us. And culturally, we would want to execute this man. And actually, by the biblical law, he was worthy of being executed. He had broken law. There was capital punishment for this. And what we see here is that God redeems even the worst of sinners, the most broken of people. And he also restores Bathsheba, those who have been taken advantage of, those who have been broken by the sins of others. He restores Bathsheba. As you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that, that Bathsheba makes this great political move to get her second son with David, Solomon, onto the throne. And God uses Solomon to bring Israel into another season of flourishing. And God restores Bathsheba's life. And she's in the family tree of Jesus. 
What does that mean for us? Why is she there? Why is the wife of Uriah mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6? To remind us, church, that God has a way of dealing with sin that we can never imagine. It's grace. It's grace. It's that Jesus enters our mess. God's way of dealing with sin is to send a Savior. It's not to expect us to pick ourselves up by our pick our mess up and put it back together and to to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to get after it and to clean ourselves up and and to to, to be better. Isn't that how we often come to church? That's going to help me be better. No, no. We gather, church, to hear from God that Jesus is better, that Jesus is redeemer, that God's way of dealing with our sin and the sin that has been done to us is to send a Savior into the mess and to meet you where you're at and to walk with you through that mess to redeem your story for his glory, for your eternal good and for the advancement of his gospel church. And so God deals with our sin by sending a Savior. He does that here in 2 Samuel chapter 12 by sending Nathan kind of as a pseudo-Savior to 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 call out David, to warn David, to confront David. And then ultimately the Lord convicts David. He feels the conviction of the Lord and he repents. That's what we see in Psalm 51. But now in the New Testament reality, because of Christmas, because Jesus entered this mess, because Jesus attached his name to David and to Bathsheba, to this tragic story that Jesus attaches his name to, you and I also can find forgiveness. It's a reminder that God's way of dealing with our sin is to send the ultimate Savior, Jesus, the one who confronts us, the one who convicts us through his spirit, but ultimately the one who forgives us and restores us and calls you son or daughter. Church family, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what's been done to you, regardless of what you are guilty of doing, God's grace doesn't run out on messy, broken, lost, hurting people. Amen? That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we remember the coming of Jesus because he entered this mess so that we might receive redemption. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. that there is grace for those of us who identify with David and that there's grace for those of us who think we're better than David. Jesus, you enter the mess to redeem the victims and the victimizers, to minister to us in our brokenness and in our pain. We need the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that this Christmas season wouldn't just be about empty phrases and, and hollow repeating of songs and, and uh, truths that we know to be true, but we've forgotten the power of. I pray that you would reignite our heart with worship of you and gratefulness for serving a Savior who deals with our sin. Jesus, thank you for engaging the mess. Thank you for picking up the pieces of the mess that we've made. for living the life that we're incapable of living, 
for dying the death that we deserved and overcoming sin and death in the grave in our place on our behalf. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.